Hello, and welcome back to Tales from the Past. My name is Maria, and this has become my little passion project. I am a Viking reenactor of nearly 12 years now, who grew up loving these tales. During my episodes, I will be reading out loud some of my favorite tales from Ragnar Lodbrok to Gorm the Old, daring battles, mischief and love. It all comes together in a big mishmash of history mixed with a tad bit of magic. You can't really go wrong with that now, can you? Today's story will be focusing on the life of Haukun the Good and the people associated with him. I will be reading out two stories in one go, actually, because they are so linked. The first part will be about Hokon and the sons of Gunnhild, and the second part will be about Earl Hokon and the Joms Vikings. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. So now, I invite you to grab yourself a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, and to sit back and relax for the next while. Let's begin the tale of Hokon the Good. We have told how King Hokon succeeded his brother Eric Bloodaxe on the throne, and how from his kindly and gentle nature people called him Hokon the Good. There were other sons and several grandsons of Harold the Fairhaired in the kingdom, but the new king treated them with friendliness and let them rule as a minor kings under him. He dealt with the peasants also in the same kindly spirit, giving them back their lands and relieving them of the tax which Harold had laid. But he taxed them all in another way, dividing the country into marine districts, each of which was required to supply the king on his demand with a fully equipped warship. Yet, as this was for the defense of the country, the people did not look on it as oppressive, and as Norway had a long mountainous coast, and important events were often long in becoming known, he gave orders that the approach of an enemy should be made known by signal fires lighted all along the coast. Hokon made other wise laws, in which he took the advice of the ablest men of the kingdom. But now we have to speak of the most striking event in the new king's career. Norway at that time was a haunt of idolatry. Men worshipped Odin and a host of other gods, and there was not a Christian in the whole land except the king himself, who had been brought up in the new faith by his foster father, King Athelstan of England. An earnest Christian, he looked with sorrow on the rude worship and heathen belief of his people, but not until he had been many years on the throne did he venture to interfere with it. Then, about 950, when he had won the love of them all, he took steps to carry out his long-cherished desire. Sending to England for a bishop and a number of priests, the king issued a decree in which the people were forbidden to make sacrifices to the old gods and ordered to accept the Christian faith. This came like a thunderbolt to the worshippers of the old gods, to bid a whole nation to give up at a word the religion which they had cherished from childhood and which their fathers had held for generations before them was too much to demand. The king brought together a concourse of the people and spoke to them of his wish and purpose, but they had no answer to make except that a matter must be settled by their legal assembly. When the thingy, or the assembly, was called in succession, a great body of the people were present, for never had so important a question been laid before them. Earnest and imploring was the speech made by the king, 
in which he warmly asked them to accept the God of the Christians and give up their heathen idols of wood and stone. These words were followed by an angry murmur from the multitude, and many dark looks were bent upon the rash monarch. Then a peasant leader, Ausbjörn of Middelhus, stepped out from the throng and spoke. When you, King Hogan, first called us here before you, and we took you for a king, it was with deep gladness, as if heaven had opened to us. But was it liberty regained, or do you wish to make thralls to us once more, that you ask us to give up the faith of our fathers and forefathers for the new and unknown one you offer? Sturdy men they were, and their faith did well for them, and has done well for us. We have learned to love you well, and have always kept and will always keep the laws made by you and accepted by us. But in this thingy, which you now demand, we cannot follow. If you are so resolved upon it, that your mind cannot be changed, then we shall be forced to part from you and choose a new chief, who will support us in worshipping our father's gods. Choose, O king, what you will do before this assembly has dispersed. So loud were the shouts of approval with which this speech was greeted that not a word could be heard. Then, when quiet reigned again, Earl Sigurd, who had spoken aside with Hogan, rose and said that the king had no wish to lose their friendship and would yield to their wishes. This was not enough to overcome the distrust of the peasants. They next demanded that he should take part in the sacrifices to be given and in the feast to follow. This he felt obliged to do, though he quieted his conscience by making the sign of the cross. When the next Yuletide sacrifice came, Hogan was required to eat horse flesh at the feast, and this time was forbidden to make the sign of the cross when he drank the usual toast to the ancient gods of Norway. This was a humiliation that cut the proud monarch deeply and it was with an angry soul he left, saying to his attendants that when he came back it would be with an army to punish those who had thus insulted his fate. Back he did not come, for new troubles were gathering around him. To learn the source of these troubles, we must return to the story of Eric Bloodaxe and Gunhild, his wicked wife. After Eric's death, and that mischief-loving woman sought Denmark with her sons, who grew up to become brave warriors and daring Viking rovers, infesting the coast of Norway and giving its kings and earls all the trouble they could. At length, backed by Harold Bluetooth, the king of Denmark, their piratical raids changed to open war and they invaded Norway, hoping to win their father's old kingdom for themselves. A crisis came in 955. In that year, the sons of Eric appeared so suddenly with a large fleet that they took King Hokon by surprise. He had with him only a small force. The signal fires had not been lighted and the enemy were close at hand before he could prepare to meet them. What shall we do? he asked his men. Shall we stay and fight or draw back and gather men? The answer came from an old peasant, Eil Wulsak. Often have I fought King Hokon with King Harold, your father. Whether the foe was stronger or weaker, the victory was always his. Never did he ask his friends if he should run, nor need you, for we are ready to fight and think that we have a brave chieftain for our leader. You speak well and wisely, Eil, said the king. It is not my wish to run, and with your aid I am ready to face the foe. Good words, those, cried Ail joyously. 
It has been so long since I saw the flash of a sword that I feared I would die in my bed of old age. Though it has been my hope to fall in battle at my chieftain's back, now will my wish be gained. To land came the sons of Eric, having six men to Hokon's one. Seeing how great were the odds, old Aeth tried strategy, leading ten standard bearers to a hidden spot in the rear of the hostile army and leaving them there in ambush. When the armies had met and the fighting was underway, he led these men up a sloping hill until the tops of their standards could be seen above its summit. He had placed them far apart, so that when the Danes saw the waving banners, it looked like a long line of new troops coming upon them. With sudden alarm and a cry of terror, they fled towards the ships. Gamle, their leader, was quick to discover the stratagem and called on them to stop, that it was all a trick, but nothing could check their panic flight, and he was swept along with them to the beach. Here a stand was made, but Hokon rushed upon them in a furious attack, in which old Ale had his wish, for he fell in the storm of sword blows, winning the death he craved. Victory rested on the king's banners, and his foes fled to the ships, Gamle, their leader, being drowned in the flight. For six years after this the land lay at peace. King Hokon continued a Christian, and many of his friends joined him in the new faith, but he was too wise and gentle to attempt again to force his belief upon his people, and the worship of the heathen's gods went on. All the people, nobles and peasants alike, loved their king dearly, and he would have ended his reign in a peaceful old age, but for his foes without the kingdom. This is the way in which the end came. In the summer of the year 961, when Hogon had been 26 years on the throne, he, with many guests, was at feast in the royal mansion of Fitje in Hördaland. While at table, a sentinel brought in the alarming news that a large fleet of ships was sailing up the fjord. By the king's side sat Eivnid, his nephew, who was a famous skald or bard. They rose and looked out on the fjord. What ships are they? Of friends or of foes? asked the king. The skal replied in a verse in which he sang that the sons of Eric were coming again. Once more they take us unawares, said Hokon to his men. They are many and we are few. Never yet have we faced such odds. The danger lies before you. Are you ready to meet it? I am loath to flee before any force, but I leave it to the wise among you to decide. Evnid sang another verse, to the effect that it would be ill counsel to advise a man like King Hokon to flee from the sons of Gunhild the sorceress. That is a man's song, cried the king, and what you say is what I wish. All around him the warriors shouted their war cry, and while they ran for their weapons, he put on his armor, seized his sword and shield, and placed on his head a gold helmet that shone brightly in the sun. Never had he looked more like a born king, with his noble and inspired countenance and the bright hair streaming down from under his helmet. The battle that followed was fierce and bloody. Harold, Gunhild's third son, commanded the invaders, who far outnumbered Hokon's small force. And now there was no ale to defeat the foe by stratagem, but the battle was hand to hand and face to face, with stroke of sword and thrust of spear the war shout of the fighters and the death wail of the fallen. King Hokon that day showed himself a true and heroic warrior, 
As the battle grew fiercer, his spirit rose higher, and when Avnid the Skell greeted him with a warlike verse, he answered with another. But the midsummer heat growing hard to bear, he flung off his armor and fought with only his strong right arm for shield. The arrows had now all been shot, the spears all been hurled, and the ranks met hand to hand and sword to sword in desperate affray. In the front ranks stood the king, his golden helmet making him a shining mark for the warriors of the foe. Your helmet makes you a target for the Danish spears, cried Avnid, and he drew a hood over it to hide its gleam. Skreya, Harold's uncle, who was storming onwards towards the king, now lost sight of him and cried out, Where is the Norse king? Has he drawn back in fear? Is he of the golden helmet a craven? Keep on as you are coming if you wish to meet the Norseman's king, shouted Hokon, throwing down his shield and grasping his sword with both hands as he sprang out before them all. Skreya bounded towards him and struck a furious blow, but he was turned aside by a Norse warrior and at the same instant Hokon's sword cleft the foreman's head down to the shoulders. This kingly stroke gave a new spirit to the Norsemen, and they rushed with double fury upon the foe, whom the fall of their best warrior filled with fear. Back to the beach they were pressed, many being slain, many drowned, a few only, Harold among them, reaching the ships by swimming. The Norsemen had won against fearful odds, but their king was in deadly peril. In the pursuit he had been struck in the right arm by an arrow with an oddly shaped head, and do what they would, the flow of blood could not be stopped. It was afterwards said that Gunnhild the sorceress had bewitched the arrow and sent it with orders to use it only against King Hokon. In those days it was easy to have men believe tales like that, but witchcraft or not, the blood still ran and the king grew weaker. As night came death seemed at hand and one of his friends offered to take his body to England after his death that he might be laid in Christian soil. Not so, said Hokon. Heathen are my people, and I have lived among them like a heathen. See then that I am laid in a grave like a heathen. Thus he died, and he was buried as he wished, while all men mourned his death, even his foes, for before breathing his last, he bade his men to send a ship after the sons of Gunnhild, asking him to come back and rule the kingdom. He himself had no sons, he said, and his daughter could not take the throne. Thus death claimed the noblest of the Norsemen, at once heathen and Christian, but in his life and deeds, as in his death, a great and good man. Chief among the nobles of Hokan the Good, of Norway, was Earl Sigurd of Flade, and first among those who followed him was Earl Hokon, Sigurd's son. After the death of Hokon the Good, the sons of Gunnhild became the masters of Norway, where they ruled like tyrants, murdering Sigurd whom they most feared. This made the young Earl Hokon their bitter foe. And here starts the story of Earl Hokon and the Jomsvikings. A young man then, of 25, handsome, able in mind and body, kindly in disposition and daring warrior. He was just a man to contend with the tyrant murderers. When he was born, Hokon the Good had poured water on his head and named him after himself, and he was destined to live to the level of the honor thus given to him. 
It is not our purpose to tell how, with the aid of the King of Denmark, he drove the sons of Gunhild from the realm, and how, as the sagas tell, the wicked old queen was enticed to Denmark by the king on the promising of marriage, and by his orders was drowned in a swamp. Her powers of sorceries did not avail her then, if this story is true. Håkon ruled Norway as a vassal of Harold Bluetooth, king of Denmark, to whom he agreed to pay tribute. He also consented to be baptized as a Christian and to introduce the Christian faith into Norway, but a heathen at heart and a Norseman in spirit, he did not intend to keep this promise. After a meeting with the Danish king in which his baptism took place, he sailed for his native land with his ship well laden with priests, but the heathen in him now broke out. With bold disdain of King Harald, he put the priests on shore and sought to counter a act the effect of his baptism by a great feast to the old gods, praying for their favor and their aid in the war that was sure to follow. He looked for an omen and it came in the shape of two ravens which followed his ships with loud clucking cries. These were the birds sacred to Odin, and he hailed their coming with delight. The great deity of the Norsemen seemed to promise him favor and success. Turning against the king to whom he had promised to act as a vassal, he savagely ravaged the Danish coastlands. Then he landed on the shores of Sweden, burned his ships and left a track of fire and blood as he marched through the land. Even Viken, a province of Norway, was devastated by him on the plea of it being under a Danish ruler. Then, having done his utmost to show defiance to Denmark and its king, he marched northward to Drontheim where he ruled like a king, though still styling himself Earl Håkon. Harold Bluetooth was not the man to be defied with impunity, and though he was too old to take the field himself, he sought means to punish his defiant vassal. Men were to be had ready and able to fight, if the prize offered them was worth the risk, and men of his kind Harold knew where to seek. In the town of Jomsborg on the island of Wolin, near the mouth of the Oda, dwelt a daring band of piratical warriors known as the Jomsvikings, who were famed for their indomitable courage. War was their trade, rapine their means of livelihood, and they were sworn to obey the orders of the chief, to aid each other to the utmost, to bear pain unflinchingly, dare the extremity of danger, and face death like heroes. They kept all women out of their community, lest their devotion to war might be weakened, and stood ready to sell their swords to the highest bidder. To this band of plunderers, Harold appealed and found them ready for the task. Their chief, Earl Sigvalde, brought together a great host of warriors at a funeral feast to his father, and there, while ale and mead flowed abundantly, he vowed, flagon in hand, that he would drive Earl Håkon from the Norse realm or perish in their attempts. His Viking followers joined him in the vow. The strong liquor was in their veins, and there was no enterprise they were not ready to undertake. When their sober senses returned with the next morning, they measured better the weight of the enterprise, but they had sworn to do it and were not the men to retreat from a vow they had taken. Eric, an unruly son of Earl Hogan, had fled from his father's court in disgrace and was now in Viken, and here the rumor of the Vikings' ode reached his ears. At once, forgetting his quarrel with his father, he hastened north with all the men he could gather to Earl Hogan's aid, 
preceding the Jomsvikings, who were sailing slowly up the shores of Norway, plundering as they went in their usual fashion. They had a fleet of 60 ships and a force of over 7,000 well-trained warriors. Håkon, warned by his son, met them with three times their numbers of ships, though these were smaller and lighter craft. On board were about 10,000 men. Such were the forces that met in what the sagas called the greatest battle that had ever been fought in Norway. Soon the embattled ships met and the conflict grew fast and furious, hurtling weapons filling the air and men falling on all sides. Great was the carnage and blood flowed in streams on the fighting ships. Earl Håkon stood in the prow of his ship, in the heat of the fight, arrows and spears whirling around him in such numbers that his shirt of mail became so torn and rent that he threw it off as useless. The high shifts of the Vikings gave them an advantage which told heavily against their antagonists, spears and arrows being poured down from the sides. In the height of the battle, Earl Håkon disappeared. As the legends tell, he went ashore with his younger son Erling, whom he sacrificed to the heathen gods to win their aid in the battle. Hardly had he done his deed of blood when a dense black cloud arose and a violent hailstorm broke over the ships. The hailstones weighing each two ounces and beating so fiercely in the faces of the Jomsvikings as nearly to blind them. Some say that the Valkyries, the daughters of Odin, were seen in the prow of the Earl's ship, filling the air with the death-dealing arrows. Despite the storm and the supernatural terrors they were conjured up, the Yom's Vikings continued to fight, though their decks were slippery with blood and melting hail. Only one coward appeared among them, their chief, Earl Sigvalde, who suddenly turned his ship and fled. When Vaughn Okerson, the most daring of the Jomsvikings saw this recreant act. He was frantic with rage. You ill-born hound, he cried. Why do you fly and leave your men in the lurch? Shame on you, and may shame cling to you to your death. A spear hurled from his hand and pierced the man at the helm where Sigvalde had stood a moment before. But the ship of the dastard Earl came on, and a general panic succeeded. All the ships in the fleeing Earl's line followed his standard. Only Vaughn Okerson and Boo the Big were left to keep up the fight. Yet they kept it up in a way to win them fame. When Earl Håkon's ship drew up beside that of Boo, two of the Viking champions, Havad the Hewer and Aslak Rockskull, leaped on deck and made terrible havoc. In the end, an Icelander picked up an anvil that was used to sharpen his spears and hurled it at Aslak, splitting his skull, while Havad had both legs cut off. Yet the indomitable Viking fought on, standing on his knees. The onset of the Yom's Vikings was so terrific in this last fierce fight that the Earl's men gave back and might have been all slain had not his son Eric boarded Boo's ship at this crisis and made an irresistible charge. A terrible cut across the face severed Boo's nose. Now, he cried, the Danish maidens will kiss me no more. Seeing that all was at an end, he seized two chests of gold to prevent their capture by the victors and sprang with them into the sea, shouting, Overboard all Boo's men! On Vaughn's ship, a similar fierce fight was taking place, ending only when all but 30 of the Vikings were slain. 
Then a savage scene was enacted, one worthy only of those barbarous times. The captives were taken ashore and seated on a long log, their feet bound, their hands free. At the funeral feast in Sigvaldis Hall, Vaughn had boasted that he would kill Torquil Laiva, one of Eric's chief warriors, and this threatened man was now chosen as executioner. At the captives he rushed, with uplifting axe, and savagely struck off their heads, one after another. Vaughn was left to be the last, that he might suffer from fear, but instead of this he sat joking and laughing with his men. One of them sang and laughed so loudly that Eret asked him if he would like to live. That depends on who it is that asks me. He who offers has the power to grant. I am Earl Eric. Then I gladly accept. Another made a pun which so pleased the Earl that he too was set free. One of the captives had long beautiful hair, and as Torkild came near him, his bloody errand he twisted his hair into a coil and asked the executioner to not soil it with his blood. To humor him, Torkil asked one of the bystanders to hold the coil while he struck. The man did so, but as the axe came down, the captive jerked his head aside so that the axe fell on the wrist of the coil holder, both his hands being cut off. Some of the Jomsvikings are still alive, laughed the captive. Who are you? asked Eric. I am said to be son of Pue. Do you wish to live? What other choice have I? At Eric's command, he too was released. Angry at being thus robbed of his prey, Torkil now sprang towards Vaughn, determined that at least his special enemy should fall. As he came near, however, one of the men on the lock threw himself forward in such a way that Torkil stumbled over him and dropped his axe. In an instant, Vaughn was on his feet, seized the axe, and dealt Torkil a deadly blow. His boast was kept. Torkil had fallen by his hand. Eric saw the bold feat with such admiration that he ordered Vaughn to be freed, and the prisoners who remained alive were also set free at his order. While this was going on, Earl Håkon set apart conversing with his chieftains. As they did so, they heard a bowstring twang, and before a hand could be raised, a keen-pointed arrow pierced the body of Gisur the White, one of the chiefs, and he fell over dead. The arrow had come from the ship of Boo the Big, and thither men ran in haste. What they saw was Havad the Heaver, still standing on his knees, though his blood flowed freely. Tell me, he cried, did any one fall at the tree yonder? Yes, Gisur the White. Then luck failed me, for that arrow was aimed for Earl Hulkon, and he fell over on the deck with death at his heartstrings. The Viking had sent a herald on before to announce his coming at Odin's court. It was Hulkon who had ordered the murder of the captains, and Eric his son who gave life to so many of them. The time was near at hand when the Earl was to meet the bloody fate which he had dealt out to others, though Eric had done so much to help him in the battle. He was furious with his son for sparing the life of Vaughn Okison. As a result, they parted in anger, Eric going south again. Here Vaughn joined him, and from that day forward, the two were warm friends and comrades. But Håkon fell into ways of vice as he grew older, and at length he did a deed that led him to a shameful death. 
he had his men bring by force to his palace the wife of a rich peasant, and sent them for another who was famed for her beauty. Orm, her husband, refused to let her go, and sent news of the outrage to all the peasants in the valley. From farm to farm flew the tidings, and the peasants, furious at the shameful deeds of the earl, seized their arms and gathered in a great band which marched upon him at Middlehus. Earl Hogan was taken by surprise. He had not dreamed of a revolt, and only a few men were with him. These he dismissed and fled for safety. Only one man, his old servant Kark, going with him. Reaching the Gull River in his flight, he rode his horse into a deep hole and left his cloak on the ice so that his pursuers, finding the dead horse and the cloak, might think he was drowned. From there he sought the nearby home of Tora of Rimul. A faithful woman friend told her of the hot pursuit and begged her to hide him from his furious enemies. The only hiding place she could provide was a deep ditch under her pigsty, and in this filthy hole the great earl was hidden, with food, candles and bedding. Then boards were laid over the ditch and covered with earth, and upon this the pigs were driven. To Rimul the peasant soon came, filled with fury, and with them came a man of note who had just landed and was seeking to win the throne. This was Olaf, a great-grandson of Harold the Fairhaired, whose claim to the crown of Norway was far better than that of Håkon. Thinking that Tora had hidden the fleeing earl, the pursuers searched the whole place. The fugitive was not being found. Olaf stood on a large stone near the pigsty and called the peasants around him, loudly announcing that any man who should find and slay Earl Håkon would be giving a large reward. His words were plainly heard in the damp and unpleasant underground then where Håkon sat shivering. He looked at Kark, the thrall, whose face showed that he too had heard the promise of reward. "'What ails you?' asked the Earl. "'Your face changes from pale to dark and gloomy. Do you propose to betray me?' "'No,' said Kark. "'We were born on the same night, and if one of us dies, the other will soon follow,' said the Earl warningly. For a long time they sat, listening to the sounds above. At length all grew still, and they felt that the night had come. Kark fell asleep, but the earl sat awake, watching him in deep distrust. The slumbering thrall tossed about as if in pain, and the earl wakened him, asking on what he had dreamt. I dreamt that you and I were on shipboard, and that I was at the helm. That means that you rule over both our lives. Therefore, Kark, you must be true and faithful to me, as duty bids you. Better days will soon come to us both, and then you shall be richly awarded. Again the thrall fell asleep, and again he seemed to dream. The earl woke him again. Of what did you dream? he asked. I dreamed that I was at Lade, and that Olaf Tregvison put a gold ring around my neck. That means, said the earl, that if you seek Olaf, he will put a red ring, a ring of blood, around your neck. Beware of him, Kark, and trust in me. Be faithful to me, and you will find in me a faithful friend. The night dragged slowly on. The earl dared not let himself sleep, but sat staring at Kark, who stared back at him. When morning was near at hand, weariness lay so heavily on the earl that he could no longer keep awake, but his sleep was sorely disturbed by the terrors of that dreadful night. He tossed about and screamed out in distress, and at length rose on his knees with the horrors of nightmare in his face. 
Then Kark, who had all nights been meditating treachery, killed him with a thrust of his knife, cutting off his head. He broke out of the dark den and sought Olaf with the grisly trophy in his hand. Olaf heard his story with lowering face. It was not to traitors like this that he had offered reward. In the end, burning with indignation at the base deeds, he ordered the thrall's head to be struck off. Thus Kark's dream, as interpreted by Hokan, came true. The ring put by Olaf round his neck was not one of gold, but one of blood. And here ends the story of both King Hokan and Earl Hokan. I hope you have enjoyed the story today, and I hope that you will join me again next time for the next episode. Thank you, take care of each other, and I'll see you soon. Bye.